Big Conversations Little Bar with your hosts Randy Florence and Patrick Evans, featuring candid conversations with the Coachella Valley's most interesting and influential people. Pull up a bar stool and enjoy Big Conversations Little Bar. Welcome to the second episode of Big Conversations Little Bar. The hint on where we are is in the name, Little Bar. Here Not with- so much a hint, I think it is uh, it's well, pretty, pretty blunt. All right, now I have to start over because I didn't mean to be so blunt. <laughs> that was my partner, Patrick Evans. Patrick, welcome. Uh, Randy Florence, is always good to be with you. It's great to be here at Little Bar in Palm Desert, the host of our program. Really, it's kind of the center point of the desert here and everybody who's anybody shows up at little bar at some point in time well we're here so if there's ever any proof of that we're here you know we started this podcast uh actually sitting in another chair over there here in the little bar and we talked a little bit about some music and getting some opinions of people about music that was important to them in their lives and skip happened to be standing nearby and said well why don't you do that in the corner of my bar and put on a podcast and Skip was such a great first guest. Uh, if you've not heard the first episode of Big Conversation Little Bar, uh, check it out. It's on all of your favorite streaming platforms, podcast platform. And we have an equally impressive guest today, Mr. Sean LaBelle, who is a good friend of mine, uh, but is a bigwig in the world of jazz. And Sean has a brand new single out called Feel the Breeze. And we'll... We can start there, Sean. There's a lot to dig into, and we really appreciate you coming and joining us. It's great to be here. Boy, the bar has been set pretty high, so I better deliver, huh? Yeah, well, the we bar's didn't always going to be set high. We're in a bar, so <laughs> <laughs> we didn't want to put a lot of pressure on you. But yeah, Skip was an amazing first guest. So yeah. Boy, it's going to be rough. (laughs) I'm really glad you're here. And as I said, I've had a couple of days to really look into the stuff that you've been doing. This uh, feel, the breeze, is fantastic. Thank you so much. I just love the feel behind it. Um, I want to start off real quickly. You mentioned you're getting ready to film a video for that. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. um, You know, obviously, it was a, a long, arduous process to complete this record. And Patrick knows I started this in 2013. So it was a... It took me longer than probably it should have, but part of the reason is I wear so many hats being in television media as well, because I'm a television producer and the president of an ad agency, so to, to be able to conduct my daily business in television, uh, there's just only so many hours in the day. And when you're, when, you're, when you're working on something of this nature, especially with a, a complex jazz record, you know, it's not like I'm creating pop songs, which you know, I've done for decades, produced many hit records in the pop arena. Jazz is more involved and, and just takes more time. And so uh, here we are. And honestly, I didn't know what the first single was going to be until about two months ago. And I was really waiting for the radio promotions department to kind of give me a better idea of which song they like, because I always like to incorporate everybody. And I'm not a unilateral decision maker. I like to involve everybody and get good input because the people that are going to be working the record have to feel good about it, right? So... um, I had a feeling that Dave Coonert, who is one of the best jazz radio promoters in the world, who I'm working with, and this is actually our first go-around. I have never worked with Dave before. Dave and I have always kind of wanted to work with each other, but I was working with another one, another very, very great promoter, but uh, I felt it was time to make a shift, and, and Dave is um, outstanding. And he came back, and he, he picked the song that I thought he was going to pick, which is Feel the Breeze. All right. Would that have been your choice also? 
You know, it was always one of my favorites. It, there was something about that song. But there is something special about this particular version. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so thank you for bringing that up. So that, that's a great segue. So um, the song was already mixed, guys. So it was done, and Patrick knows this. Um, the record was mixed, and the single was mixed. But I wanted to take it to another level. And I felt like the end vamp, which is the outro chorus of a song, which is called a vamp, I kind of felt like it was wide open for a feature. And one of my idols growing up, in fact, I, I, I can go back to Minneapolis growing up when I was 17, 18 years old, I was out with Patty Peterson. Patrick knows the Peterson family, which is another jazz family like my family. Our families were kind of the two families in Minneapolis that were uh, quite a few musicians in the family that played and performed. And so we were the two kind of two jazz families. And Patty and I were at the Patrice Russian concert in Minneapolis in 1982. And I'm in the audience. And who's on stage but Patrice, Gerald Albright, Freddie Washington. I mean, all these incredible players who now have turned out to be some of my, you know, Gerald's one of my best friends. Um, you, just, you just never know how life is, what, what, where it's going to lead you and where it's going to take you, what path. But anyway, I love Patrice Russian. I was a huge fan of hers. And years have gone by, decades have gone by, and obviously I've, you know, I've been in the pop R&B arena making hits for decades and working with all kinds of artists, but I wasn't primarily making jazz records. So it wasn't, she wasn't really on my radar for what I was doing until something dawned on me that this song just felt like it could, it could really work with her and that her style would be the right kind of piano playing for this. But she, and you told me this, she doesn't usually do features. I mean, she's, she's a solo performer, uh, an artist uh, of great distinction in her own right. So how did you convince her to take part in, in this single? It's a great question, and you're right. And it was it was just one of those things. I thought there is just it's very unlikely I'm going to get her because she just does not do features. I mean, she's listed Herbie Hancock. Let me put it to you this way, and we all know who Herbie Hancock mm -hmm. is. All right, so Herbie is probably one of the greatest of all time, if not the greatest. Ian Chick Corea, McCoy Tyner. I mean, all these guys are iconic, but they're in a whole different league of musicianship. When Herbie says, okay, and this is quote-unquote Herbie, Herbie said he can't tell sometimes on a solo whether it's him or her. Wow. 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 So, so this was a big get yeah. for, for, for the album and for this particular single. And when you're dropping it as the first single off the album, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And so I, I, I just thought, ah, I'm not going to get her, but, you know, I'll, I'll just take a shot. And so Gerald, of course, who's toured with her for years, Gerald Albright, who's probably one of the top five you know, greatest sax players in the world, who's one of my dear friends, who actually we co-wrote a song on the album. Um, I sent him an email and I said, hey, gee, I need a favor. And he said, uh, he wrote me back, what do you need? I said, I know this is probably a super, super duper long shot, but I'd love to get Patrice Russian to play on my single. And without hesitation, he wrote me right back and he said, give me 10 minutes. <laughs> and I was a little in shock because I don't want to say that people in this industry don't tend to help each other, but they really they don't. don't tend to help each other. <laughs> <laughs> and so to expect him to actually come through and do this was sort of like, but I, I know him well enough to know that he's a really good soul and he's a big supporter of mine. You know, he's always been kind of like a big brother. I, I, we've known each other for 30 plus years. And of course, he's 
you know, he's played with everybody. And he's on that famous song, Forget Me Nots, of Patrice Rush. And of course, everybody knows that iconic jazz solo. You can't forget that solo on that song because it's so identifiable. Well, anyway, um, it wasn't even 15, 20 minutes later, and I was out to dinner, actually, coincidentally, with Patrick, with some, uh, some folks that we work with over at KESQ. And so we're sitting at dinner, and I turned to Patrick, and I showed him the phone, and I said, I got her. <laughs> He said, you got who? I said, I got Patrice Russian. And he said, he looked and he went, wow. And so it was, it was really something, the fact that she did it. And she was so gracious. Um, I sent her the track. And she's, she's, she's not what you would think she is. You know? So obviously, there must have been a familiarity with me from, with her. Because she was very, very easy and natural and kind of asked my opinion. And was I happy? And did she want me to did, do I want her to change anything so it was it was very um, really cool did you did you change anything I didn't change a thing <laughs> and you want to know something honest to God and you know me what a perfectionist I am Patrick and I and I am sort of a you know a, a, I'm very very diligent and and I I don't hold back my feelings anybody that knows me about production knows that I'm you know I'm I'm a nice guy but I'm very firm, and I know what I want, and I know what I want to hear. He's kind of hard to work with, is yeah. what he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> and you boiled that down to just a Let few me, words yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> honestly, it was so great. In fact, my older brother asked me yesterday, who's another great piano player in the family, and he asked me, um, did I, you know, did I, you know, uh, as far as the radio version, um, did I have to cut it up? And, and I said, no, this solo was so perfect. It was amazing. From start to finish, in fact, Steve Hall, who is probably one of the most famous mastering engineers in the world, Steve did all the iconic Earth, Wind & Fire records. He mastered the record and the single. And he asked me, where do I want him to cut? I said, take it all the way to the end, just before she stops. I want it all the way. I don't want to lose any of it because I feel like, I'm not just saying this because it's my record, but... I feel like it's one of those iconic piano solos that people are always going to go back and listen to. And Gerald said the same thing. So that's kind of neat to be able to create something that is probably going to be around for decades that people are going to listen to and go, wow, that's, that's, a, that's a cool very solo. Cool. Do you, are you planning on doing anything more with her in the future? I'd like to. In fact, I wrote her the other day and I said, you know, um, as we move down the road with the record, I think I can get you back. And she was totally cool and wide open and into it and collaborating and we're even discussing the possibility and the idea of playing together live and you know so obviously uh let's hope radio gives it the love that it deserves well there will be a podcast that'll give it a solo that's deserves, right so. that's right and that by the way feel the breeze is out right now it dropped on february 6th so on all of your favorite music streaming uh platforms you can get sean labelle feel the breeze and soon the entire album Supermoon will drop, and you've been working on that album. And you mentioned like it goes back a decade. You've been working. Yes, yeah. I started in 2013, so it was really immediate when I began because it was literally on the eve of the passing of one of my idols. Um, we lost George Duke back in 2013. Of course, the keyboard player for Frank Zappa, and he's worked with everybody. George is probably one of the most respected keyboardists. Uh, musicians in the world, on, once again on that list of all-time legends. And I became good friends with George uh, back in 1989 when I was signed to Warner Brothers Music. I had written a song called Remember My Love um, that I wrote with my writing partner from Chicago, Steve Grissett. 
And we wrote the song, turned it into Warner Brothers. And if you know anything about music publishing, we were staff writers. So we would write songs and then submit them for various artists that we felt that it would make sense for. At that time, I don't think we necessarily had really anybody in mind other than just give us a hit record, give us a name artist. You know, back then in 89, it was probably, you know, it was all the Bobby Brown, New Edition, a lot of that stuff was happening. So, you know, Babyface was big, Jam and Lewis, who I grew up with in Minneapolis. So there was a lot of wide open acts that this song could really work for but of course with my Sean LaBelle sound which is always more R&B jazz based it had those elements so it was a little bit on the more hip side than you would expect well anyway it somehow got into the hands of George Duke this is kind of a fun story so George being one of my absolute you know idols growing up um, I get this phone call I'm in my Brentwood place and it's like 2 in the afternoon I answer the phone and this guy says it's George Duke I thought it was my older brother playing a joke on me. <laughs> and this is the true story. I hung up the phone. <laughs> so now the phone rings again. And this man's a car guy calls, Sean, this is, hey, this is George Duke, man. Uh, hey, uh, I just want to talk to you about some of your music. And I'm like, Lance, my older brother's Lance. <laughs> I said, Lance, stop. Stop. So I hung up the phone again. Again? I did. So <laughs> we got to get Lance on the phone. It was, it, was, it was great. So the third time he calls again, he says, Sean, this is George Duke. I said, why do you keep hanging up the phone on me, man? And then I, and then I started to go, wait a minute. This does not sound like Lance. He said, and I really dig that song of yours, Remember My Love. And I went, oh, my God. It is, this, is, this is not Lance. I said, is this really George Duke? And he says, yes. I said, well, you have to understand something, George. I said, I've been an idol of yours since I'm a baby. I mean, I, I, I'm just so in awe and shocked that you're calling my house. He said, he said well, who's playing on, on this song? Who's playing all the, all, the, all the instruments? And I said, I am. He said, well, what program are you using? And I said, I'm not programming it. I'm playing it. Wow. And he said, well, what sequencer are you using? I said, I didn't sequence. I played all the instruments. He said, he said what are you doing tomorrow? And I, nothing. <laughs> he said, why don't you come over to my studio in Hollywood Hills? I said, what time? So I, I'm out there at 5 a.m. <laughs> Sorry, George, I'm busy tomorrow. <laughs> so he invited me He invited me over, and I met that day an artist named Everett Harp, who has turned out to be one of my best, dearest friends I've worked on five albums with since. Uh, and Everett, of course, was Anita Baker's sax player and then toured with Kenny wow, Loggins. Okay. And Everett is, you know, a beast, you know, another one of the most amazing players in the world. So I went over to the studio, but this is kind of a fun story. So now, back then, there was a keyboard called a Synclavier. Yeah. And it was a very, very large, uh, heavy-weighted action keyboard. Not like a, you know, most synthesizers have more of a lighter plastic action. This was a very heavy keyboard, almost, you know, like a real piano. And the, the Synclavier was a sampler. It was one of the early keyboard samplers, if you know what I mean by a s keyboard sampling mm -hmm. uh, apparatus. And so... I was playing a bass part, and you had me playing something. I went up to go this, do this big mini Moog slide where you go, Row, you know, and I'm, I'm into it, and it's killing. Everybody's having more funky, and he's digging it, and I'm playing. I go in for this big slide, but because of these keys are so heavy, I cut open my hand. There was blood everywhere. 
all over this keyboard. And this Synclavier at the time was, this was not a cheap keyboard. No, We're you're, talking you're about. You're on a very expensive piece of equipment. Yeah, it's probably 25, 40 grand. I don't know. It's and it belonged grand. to somebody. Yeah, it was George's. <laughs> so you only yeah. visited George once, but. <laughs> and, and I remember him saying, he said, I wanted it funky, but that's not the kind of funk I was looking for. <laughs> I'll give you everything I have, George. <laughs> so that was my introduction to George. And of course, we've been, you know, we were friends ever since. And every time I would run into him, of course, he would always have to bring up the uh, the mini moke slide and the, and the blood. And he said, I'm still cleaning the blood. Yeah, exactly. The hand did heal, oh, but he's trying to clean up the blood. But anyway, so we lost him in 2013 and way too young. And it was a, a very, very, very sad loss for all of us in the music and jazz community. And uh, I took it real hard. So I wrote a song called See You Again. And that was the first song to answer your question. Because I know I got, that was a long road to get here, but I think, you know, I wanted to tell that story because I sort of explains the relationship. And um, the song, of course, is uh, paying homage to him, but also it's also uh, my, about my father and the loss of my dad, who I lost in 2010. And it has an incredible vocal on it by Stokely. Of course, Stokely is probably one of the top, if not the top, R&B singer in the country right now. He's had multiple you know, number one hits, and um, he's also one of my dear, dear, dear friends, so he did an amazing job. Stokely, if you're not familiar with him, and Patrick is, he sounds a lot like Stevie Wonder, mm. and Stevie loves it, and um, so it's an amazing cut, and that's one that uh, will hopefully see the light of day at radio, and, and you know, at some point down the road here. You, All right, you, I want... Go ahead. I wanted to transition because you mentioned your dad. Yes. Uh, and so let's step away from the music for a minute. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about, because the other side of your professional life is, uh, you mentioned you're uh, a television producer uh, and you own a media company. Uh, this was something that you were kind of handed down by your father who worked in this business. And he was a living legend in television during his years, his active years. Talk a little bit about your dad and the, and the things that he, he brought to life. Yeah, you know, growing up as a little kid, I don't think you realize, you know, the impact that your father is having on the, you know, the media world. I knew what I knew what the impact he had on me as a child, but you just you just you know, you don't really understand the reality of it until you get a little older, but my father was uh, absolutely a, a, an icon. He worked with Phyllis Diller, Milton Berle, um, created some of the most incredible campaigns in television advertising which include Land of Lakes you know the little Indian butter I mean that well that whole commercial that was all his stuff campaign Betty and Crocker it, the Betty uh, Crocker and the Land of Lakes logo, of course, they changed. They removed the Native yeah, American, and yeah. that was that was kind of that didn't sit well with you because no, that was no, it didn't sit well with me because what where, where I think people are missing the boat, and I'm not trying to be insensitive here by any stretch of the imagination because I think I think where people misinterpret was my father's interpretation and all the things that he did in Minneapolis, like working on Minigasco, which was the Minneapolis Gas Company logo, a lot of Indian related stuff. But of course, we grew up in Minneapolis, exactly. So. It was paying homage to the Indian population. And your dad always did things out of respect. And, and, out of and respect. I think that was what was missing in that very corporate decision to pull and change that logo. I think yes. it, it is a blind march to, to political correctness, and sometimes we overstep. And I think that was one of those overstepping. Yes, and I, 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 you know, I, you know, and I don't want to get 
too terribly crazy political here, but I, I just think there's a sensitivity now today with that I I think I think it's it's getting a little much for me, um, and I think people want to miss they want to interpret things in the way they want to interpret it, and it always seems to have a negative connotation connotation instead of it's not a negative slant. I mean, well, I mean, if you look at something some like the Washington Redskins, there were years and years and years of people who really disagreed with that name, and 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 for good reason. I don't remember anybody complaining about the Land O'Lakes logo. Right. I, there was no controversy. Not that. at all. Not so at I, all. I, mean, I think that was, again, just kind of corporate overreaction. Yes. But that was a logo that your father... It was involved in creating, yeah. yes, and and he worked on you know so many of those uh, creations. Worked on you know many Gasco, and he was involved in in the creation of so many of these campaigns. Um, what uh, was his work like with Phyllis Diller and Milton Berle? What was he doing with them? Yeah, so Milton Berle had the it was the Milton Berle specials. Yeah, yeah, and so he was involved in the production for the Milton Berle specials, mm. and it's another great story. So. This is a this is a really good story, and this is a Palm Springs story connection. I think I might have told you this. So my folks back when they were alive, they're gone sadly, but uh, they were members of Canyon Country Club, of course, which is a well-known club here in the valley. It's no longer here. It's now um, I think what is it Indian Canyon? Indian Canyon, yeah. yeah. But it was a it was a predominantly Jewish country club here in the valley. And my folks were members. And it was a great, beautiful, beautiful club, great club. But uh, Milty would be there often, I guess. Um, I don't think my dad ever ran into him. It's a good thing he didn't. So there was a shoot that Milty wanted to move on my dad. He wanted to move it from New York to Los Angeles, but without discussing this with my father. Well, you have to realize back then it's not like today where you got, you know, a small crew, you know, for a lot of productions because, you know, everything's so digital now. I mean, Patrick knows I go out and shoot commercials. It's me a lot of times. So, um, and sometimes I have another guy with me, but, you know, things are done on such a a smaller level and budget restrictions, of course, everything's budget minded now, but Milty tried to move the entire shoot and he did. And he moved it without my father's permission. And my father was really pissed off. And so they had a very, very bad blowout and sort of a breakup, so to speak, Wow! from that. And then they didn't work together after that. That was the end of that. You know, my father, he was kind of, you know, you kind of get where I'm living now, where I come from. So I'm I'm very much, you know, I I have my way. And if you don't like it, tough. (laughs) And so... (laughs) the way I roll, buddy. But um, when I told you he was difficult to work with <laughs> early on. So now years later, decades later, my dad's sister is that, and by the way, am I able to use any type of slight profanity on our podcast? Uh, we're not governed by the FCC. Okay, so there's no FCC yeah. stuff going on or NAB, okay, any of that stuff. Okay, good. So um, my dad's sister sees Milty at Canyon Country Club. And she walks over to the table and she says, uh, Mr. Burl, I just want to introduce myself. Uh, you worked with my brother, you know, for a period. Uh, and he looked up and said, who's that? And I said, my name is Lenore LaBelle. And he looked up at her and said, Lorny LaBelle, that son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Can't make it up. Can't wow. make it up. So M- M- Milt held a, a little bit of a grudge like your dad did. He did. <laughs> he did. But he never forgot him. Never no, forgot no. him. <laughs> Hey, I want to go back to that for a minute, if we can. You talked sure. about coming up in a musical family. Yeah. Um, for you personally, were you always going to get into music? And if if you were, was it always going to be jazz? You know, uh, it's a great question. All my child aptitude tests screamed entertainment and music. 
So it, it was really obvious at a very young age. I guess I was banging in my high chair um, when I was two. Yeah. And at five years old, they got me a set of drums, and I just played. And self-taught, so nobody taught me. Um, and How was, many instruments do you play? So I'm a drummer, bass player, keyboard player, and guitar player. So four. Um, and I would say probably I'm most well-known uh, at this stage of my life as a bass player. But um, Patrick knows I'm also a keyboard player, very good bass keyboard, mini Moog bass player. When you were on tour with Jody Watley, what were you? I was primarily playing keyboard bass. Yeah, so it was, I, I don't even think I played guitar, bass guitar on more than one song. It was mostly keyboards. Wow. So, yeah. Ever so, any vocals? Yeah, I could sing a little bit. Um, I'm not, that's not my, my main axe, but yes, I can sing a little bit. Um, you have to, to be able to do what I've done for so many years and write hit records and hit you know, melodic melodies and songs with words. Um, you have to be able to sing, to be able to sing songs with well, words. I used to give Sean a hard time, and I actually I learned something. Uh, I was teasing him. Uh, I said, you know, this is great, but why don't you do some music with words? <laughs> and so there's kind of this, this battle between like the jazz folks and the pop folks and the pop folks look down on jazz people because they don't have a lot of lyrics and, and I didn't realize this when I was needling Sean but I kind of struck a nerve <laughs> he was you pretty know, mad at me really thanks for being on the show and, and anyway, I'm gonna take, that. I don't want to blow up his mic when I take off my headset <laughs> here and leave so I just want to let you know so you can turn the audio down anyway <laughs> Well, that's why I was delighted to see. I am lucky enough to have a full copy of of the Supermoon album. There are lots of songs with words, man. That's a rental, by the way. (laughs) Oh, okay. I'll bring that back. back. (laughs) Yeah, it's a CD for God's sake. It's going to be a coaster. Don't make download the. (laughs) You don't make any money in this business anymore. Ten dollars. What's the matter with you? Anyway, um, yes, we're worried. Spotify's not making you rich. You know, it's it's interesting. So you have to understand something. I come from a period in the record industry when we sold millions of records, and now we're lucky to sell 10,000 copies. So um, throughout my history now, what is it, uh, four decades, um, as a writer-producer, I've sold 20 million records. That's with various artists. So back in those days, that would equate to some, you know, some pretty good dollars. Right, because you're actually talking about the sales of the physical album itself. Right, because back then, that's exactly right, Patrick. So people were buying CDs and buying records, and you were making some real, real money. And but now, nobody's buying albums, and if artists are printing CDs, which I did in this case, a very short, small run. Um, you pay for that up front. That's out of right. that's out of pocket costs for you. Right, right. Um, this particular record, I've, I've been. I'm currently a Sony songwriter and producer. I'm signed to Sony. I have been for quite a long time. That used to be EMI Music, which was bought out. But this record is actually uh, out, of, out of my own label because I'm proud to say I'm recouped and I didn't have to give it to him. <laughs> there you go. So I didn't. Um, and and you know and that's for obvious reasons because whatever money you can make. You want to make whatever you can make back. So when someone listens to a song, like, and I'm, I think my primary platform is, is Apple Music, and I'll download sure. stuff. Uh, I mean, it's it's a buck or a buck twenty nine to download a song these days. What does the artist get out of that? 
Yeah. Um, actually, I mean, it's pennies, right? No, it's a little more than that because, I mean, it, it, my deal with this particular distributor, they get like 15%, which isn't a whole lot. Mm. So at the end of the day, it's a fairly nice little cut. So, yeah, you know, we can make a little bit of money. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's nothing, but it's, you know, compared to when you were selling millions not of like Well, I, I, you know, in our previous podcast, we were talking with Skip. He was talking about how it is to make money in the music business to do these shows that they do. You kind of have to own the whole thing, all the concessions, all the merch. That's totally. The merch is really where, the, like, on the, the, yes. the touring acts make their money on the merch no question about it that's why when you go and you look back at when you two did their big record or cd a couple i still call it a record i'm old school didn't even <laughs> charge anybody for the downloads if you remember yeah well actually they kind of forced them on us as i recall right we woke up one day and it was sitting there on itunes yeah, yeah. It, it's all predicated and going out and touring now and touring is where it's at and that's where i'll make my money off of this project and of course off of what's called sound exchange I can make some pretty decent money, especially when you start getting airplay on, on like Sirius XM and stuff like that. So that adds up to be a little bit of dough. But you know, it's not like it's not like the old days, sadly. So when you were growing up, did you have a group of friends that were all into jazz music, or was this just a direction you personally decided to head? It was well, my older brother, who's already you know was already a, a, an incredible pianist by the time i started to get interested in music he's a jazz piano player of course my dad played my mom right. sang um so there was already you know lots of jazz i mean in my house i wasn't listening to rock and roll i was listening to satin doll okay wow. so and, and you know all the standards and and that's what i grew up listening to and then of course because it was in the house and so i don't know how that ended up becoming a part of who I am, but it did. And then I, I started to get real into like George Benson, um, you know, George Duke, Herbie Hancock, Jeff Lorber, a um, lot of R&B funk, Pleasure, Gap Band, Daz Band. I mean, I, I, mean, I, was, I, I, was, I was really immersed in, in funk and R&B. By the time I was probably 14, 15 years old, that's, that's kind of where I was. I was. That's where I lived. Um, so that sort of became, I was sort of an R&B guy, but I was a jazz guy. And then I started, you know, doing a lot of gigs. So as a younger kid, nine, ten years old, I was already out doing dates, casuals, playing weddings and bar mitzvahs and parties. I mean, I was gigging. Were you comfortable with that from the beginning? I really was. And I, I mean, that's all I really wanted to do. I mean, my older brother, while he was, you know, going through college and law school, was also gigging in, in, in bands at night. And I would go out and sit in and play. And they'd bring me up. And it was like, oh, here's this little kid. And then everybody would laugh and think, oh, yeah, what's he going to be able to do? But no, I went, got up and played drums and I killed it. And everybody was like blown away. They just couldn't believe that somebody my age. So it got to the point where club owners were actually telling Lance, my older brother, bring your little brother up because he's kind <laughs> of... don't show up, Lance. Yeah, yeah. No, seriously. So they would, they would bring me out and they would feature me at like midnight at this club in St. Paul. It was called the Blue Chip. And Ron Maddox, who was a city council member in St. Paul, was a big fan of mine. He loved me to come out and sit in and play. And so he thought it was super cool and cute. And there's a, they were letting this little kid in this bar, you know? Very cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, as a performer, you've done an awful lot of work, but you also produced... Uh, a, a lot of stuff over the years. And I wonder if we wanted to talk about you as the co-producer of Ray Charles' final album. Yeah. So that was that was really, really, really crazy how that came to fruition. So my manager at the time was a guy named Gary Reed. And Gary was uh, a Harvard Law grad. And he actually went to school with Clarence Thomas. So he was one of the few black 
uh, attorneys that, that came out of that class from Harvard, um, which was really amazing. And uh, he was uh, married to one of the Pointer sisters, Anita Pointer. Really? Yes. And so I was introduced to him through Prince's manager in Minneapolis because Prince's manager, he thought that Gary and I would be a really, really good match. And so this was in early 1991. And so uh, I was introduced to Gary, and it was just, we just hit it off. It was love at first sight, just as far as manager-client relationship. And, and he was more than a manager. He, he became, like, one of my really, really close best friends. And so at that time, I was kind of in between places to live. And uh, so he said, hey, why don't you, you come up to, and, and this, they broke up eventually, but, which was kind of a sad story shortly thereafter. But um, Anita <laughs> lived on the top of Mulholland. And if you know anything about that area, and I know Patrick probably knows exactly what I'm talking about, there's development on the very top, which everybody knows because it was featured years ago on Lifestyles and the Rich and Famous. And this is like where Ed McMahon lived. And this house was absolutely beyond anything I had ever seen in my life, which was actually my first introduction to a Sub-Zero, which we'll get into in a little while, Patrick. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring up your fetish for the Sub-Zero. Second yeah, half, the second half of the show is about it, the it's Sub-Zero. It's all about, it's going right? to be Sub-Zeros, where to get them. I'm going to give you the, like <laughs> distribution numbers, everything else. Hey, if but they want to sponsor our podcast, it's available. Yeah. Brought to you by Sub-Zero. <laughs> <laughs> we're the coolest podcast in town. <laughs> Sick. Oh, we're here all week, folks. <laughs> so... Um, she said, why don't you come stay at our house? And I'm... Really? She said, yes. So I literally lived in the Needy Pointer's house on the top level for a month. Wow. And there was a butler, and this place was incredible. Um, studio right in the house. And I remember, this is kind of a funny story. So her neighbor directly across the street was Ed McMahon. And I thought, oh, that's crazy. So um, <laughs> one morning I'm getting up. And I had these incredible windows that you couldn't see in. I mean, just beautiful. So I'm, you know, I'm out of the shower, and all of a sudden I look across the street, and in the window, and I can't make this up, is a butt-naked Ed McMahon. Hi-oh. Oh, hey oh. Yeah, yes. I was going to go there. Absolutely unbelievable. You are correct, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Here's my Johnny. <laughs> I have had quite a life. I am not going to deny that I have not had quite a life. I really have. I've been very blessed. But it's it's been just incredible some of the things that have happened to me. But, um, yes, she was really great. He was great. And um, I remember while I was there, he said, hey, I, 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 I've got a, a session for you. And I said, uh What's going on? He said, well, Richard Perry, of course, you probably know that name because Richard was married uh, to Jane Fonda, and he's been with everybody, even Morgan Fairchild, and he's had some. Anyway, he produced all the Rod Stewart records, and okay. I, mean, I mean, just I can go on and on, Pointer Sisters records, all kinds of stuff. Classic legend. Um, he's working on this, this, this act. And I said, well, what act is that? And he said, well, Ray Charles. And I went, uh, Ray Charles? He said, yes. He said, he wants you to play bass. On, on, on a couple of cuts. He said, can you get down there like in the next hour? And I said, I'm like, okay. Went up to my suite up the Pointer Mansion and I drove over and my, at that time I had a little Volkswagen Cabriolet convertible and I couldn't wait to get over there and I get over to the studio and Richard with a big, his big smile and anybody knows anything about Richard knows he's all teeth and he invited me in and he stutters 
and if anybody has seen him in interviews, he'll, uh, 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 I mean, I, I, I say that affectionately, but so he asked me after I finished playing, he turns over and he looks at me and he goes, uh, 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 so what do you uh, 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 think of the record? <laughs> and I, I said, I think it's great, Richard. He said, no, no, no. What do you really think? And I said, I think it sounds great. He said, stop patronizing me. He said, I know your background. I know your history in Minneapolis and the Prince sound in Minneapolis. And at that time, everybody was enamored with the Minneapolis sound because of Prince and what had come out of Minneapolis because our direction was very funky. It was a different kind of funk than people had heard before. So he knew that. And he wanted to do something that was sort of slightly cutting edge. And he said, um, so I, I said, well, if you want me to answer the question honestly, I, I will. I said, I think it could be, you could do more programming instead of the real drum kit. He had Vinnie Cagliotto, who's one of my favorite drummers of all time. But I said, if we took it a little more as, at that time, that was the beginning of what was called hip hop which, of course, everybody knows what that is now today. Well, they just did a big 50th anniversary of hip-hop on the Grammy Awards. Uh, so so this, was, this was sort of when worlds collide, because the idea of actually taking Ray Charles and taking him in a more urban direction, hip-hop, was something that probably people would never have thought of, but that was something that I thought would be unique and different. What did Ray Charles think of? He loved it. Yeah. In fact, there were several interviews. In fact, there's a great one. I'll have to send it to you. Where they asked him, and someone said, you know, uh, Ray, how, why, what is this hip-hop stuff you're doing on this new record? And Ray got really pissed off, and he said, let me tell you something. I don't know what hip-hop is. I don't care what hip-hop is. All I care about is great music. And this is great music, and I don't put labels on it. And he walked out of the interview. Apparently, he was really pissed off. Wow. wow. So he just thought he thought it was great and he loved it and that's something i can take to the grave but you ended up doing more than just playing yeah you ended up being co-producer of that i I ended up co-producing several cuts on the record and it was it was crazy when i thought i was going to be there for a day i was there for three weeks or a month and richard leaned on me for everything and he said here you go here's my rolodex call whoever you want and at that time, that was Benny Medina, who is, of course, everybody knows who that is. And, you know, Benny, you know, that record, I think it hit, go, it's going to go down in history probably as one of the most expensive records of all time. I, I don't even know how much it was, but it was millions. So, yeah. Just for the players and the... Oh, yeah. yeah that literally had everybody on that record. I mean, to your point, it was one of the last records he ever made. So I, I was calling everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so I, it was, it was, it was a blast, and it was, it was so fun to work on, and to be able to have that kind of capital to be able to call whoever you know the, the best singers in the world, whoever you want to use, and and I did, and it, it was, it was great, and um, of course it, it was, it was, it had its share of controversy because of the hip hop element that people, the purists, that wanted to hear Ray Charles in its pure form, and I took it in, in, a, in an artistic, you know, different direction. So, you know, you, it was scrutinized at the same time, but I'm proud of it. Besides yourself, who are we going to be listening to that's popular now in jazz 50 years from now, where, like we're watch, listening to the ones from 50 years ago? Yeah, you know, that's a, what a great question, Kevin. Um, Randy. Randy. Okay. Just, sorry. I was, I was talking Patrick's to, the only one who doesn't know my no, name. No, 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 Randy. I was talking to somebody earlier today, and <laughs> I, anyway, I was on with another friend of mine, Kevin, for most of the afternoon today, so I apologize. He's working on my promotion for my record. So, um... There are so many amazing young artists now coming out of like Asia. I don't know, and, 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 and it seems to me what's weird about it is these young Asian artists, young guy piano, young piano players, they're getting younger and younger and younger, 
and they're and they're and they're getting more and more amazing. Where there's I, I, there's a couple that I can't even I can't even think of their names right now. I've got like a mental block, but some of these young kids are sounding like Herbie Hancock, and I I think that there's going to be some some people coming up here that are going to go down in history that are going to be like that. But will they ever make it to that level of like Herbie? I don't know if we're going to ever, ever, at least in my lifetime, I don't know if we're ever going to hear anybody that's quite that. Um, well, in any lifetime. Yeah. There's not many. No, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. And um, that's what makes me so sad when we lose some of these guys like George. And, you know, I still have several of my good friends that are around. I, I put Jeff Warber in a class like that. And, you know, Jeff's brilliant and getting older now. And, you know, I always worry about him because he's a kidney uh, transplant per, uh, person and so um, yeah you know some of these amazing players like that you know there's just there's just not that many of them yeah. that are on that level by its nature jazz really has no boundaries but it has changed over the last hundred years where do you see it going from here you know I where do I see it going I don't know where it's gonna head from here all I know is that it's been highly disrespected in my opinion um, I think it's really tragic that you, you know, I don't even watch the Grammys anymore. I know that sounds horrible. Um, I just don't. Um, I'm just tired of the same artists. Although a friend of mine won last night who I've actually performed on stage with, which I thought was really cool. Bonnie Raitt. Bonnie Raitt. Fantastic. And so um, I played with her in Canada at the Winnipeg F uh, Folk Festival decades ago. Wow. And so... I thought that was really cool. Um, Amazing song. That she won. Amazing and then, song. And her brother, Steve Raitt, who we lost to brain cancer several years ago, was our mix audio person in Minneapolis in multiple bands that I played with. So the Raitts are great people, and I was really happy to see her win, and I'm disappointed I didn't see that. And it was really amazing because there was somebody on Facebook that some writer i don't know who it was he this unknown, unknown blues artist, blues and I'm, artist. And I'm, I'm like are you out of your mind yeah that was some 14 year old song uh, music writer uh, it's like <laughs> come on get it you know so you were talking about the music you listened to growing up was the you know the music that your parents were playing but what when you started kind of picking the music that you liked what was the stuff that you were listening to like what what music inspires you yeah, you know, I think I think probably one of the early artists that I was I would probably my older brother Lance, if you were here, he would agree that probably the record that I wore out and I would play drums along with every day after school. You have to realize I was not like most kids. I wasn't going out and playing. I was going home and I was practicing. You're drums. not like most adults either. <laughs> <by the way. laughs> it's true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. On the Sub Zero website every night, it's not like most adults, you know. But um, I would be jamming to the George Benson Breezen record. If you remember that record, which is probably still one of my favorite records of all time. And you know, George was just had such an impact on me and I loved his records and uh, so George would probably be one of the first ones that comes to mind Did you ever play with him? No, I haven't I have a lot of friends that have played with him of course um, in fact Michael O'Neill who's on my record is his current guitar player who tours with him Michael's on um, the single See You Again that I brought up so um yeah, it's my, my connection to George. And, and no, I haven't even met George, which is kind of ironic. Really? Yeah. With, I mean, no, with all the friends. I that, mean, you have so many connections. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of shocked at that. Yeah. It, it, no, I, I haven't met George. And it was even kind of ironic that I had never met Patrice either all these years. You've played so. with Bonnie Raitt, but you've never met George Benson. No. That's just crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. So that was... Uh, 
that was uh, actually unusual that I didn't I didn't end up meeting him and, and maybe one day I will. In fact, I just exchanged. It was really cool. <laughs> um, I produced, co-produced, I should say, the last big Ambrosia single. If you remember Ambrosia mm -hmm. with David Pack, um, "Can't Let Go" was the song. My good friend Oliver Lieber called me to do it with him at the time and it was a remix of, of their classic hit Can't Let Go which had Michael McDonald James Ingram and David Pack on it and what an honor wow. to get a call to work on that in any event all the vocals were done so we basically received these vocals and we were told go ahead and do whatever you want to the track we want a modern updated R&B fresh version of this song had they re-recorded the tracks or these were the original tracks original vocals so I'm pulling up the faders with Oliver at his studio, and these vocals are just like the most angelic, the most amazing, gorgeous things I have ever heard in my life. I mean, Michael McDonald's vocals, I mean, just perfect, perfect in tune, perfect intonation. I mean, it's just, I had chills. It was really that amazing. And today, because so many of these young artists, and don't even get me started, they want you to auto-tune them and correct them, and it's like nobody wants to effing sing, and it's like I'm one of these guys that comes from the school of you do it over and over and over and over until you're in tune and you're in time, right? And I would work with that. Trust me. <laughs> Spent hours and hours and hours. My good buddy Oliver Lieber had to go syllable by syllable with Paul Abdul. So, oh, man. So we've been through it all. So to be able to pull these vocals up and these faders and have it be so amazing and so gorgeous was incredible. So anyway, long story short, we created the track, and it was very well received. And I, was, I remember I was driving one of my BMW leases from Minnesota out here to California, and I pulled into an Oklahoma City gas station. True story. And I'm getting chips or something at like 2 in the morning. And the song is playing in the store, which is <laughs> just, just kind of fun. So I walk up to the girl and getting my chips, and I said, "You know, I worked on that record." She looked at me and went, "Huh? <laughs> <laughs> what record is that?" Yeah, yeah. Just one of those moments that <laughs> you just had to tell somebody. Hey, <laughs> what's a record? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think her next question was to me, did you get gas with that? No, it's anyway. So that was out the door and back on the road. And that was the end of that. But um, it was a, it was an amazing thing. So there was a uh, Facebook post. On, oh, it was my good friend Patty Peterson was um, uh, exchanging with uh, Michael. And I, that was my first actual conversation with Michael on Facebook. And so, I, you know, we had never met. So here's another, there's another one where that's a record I worked on, but I've never met the guy you, you well because the vocals were already done and they were already so done you never had any action with the, with the singers no themselves. so that was what was kind of ironic that there's been so many of these records that i've now done through the years where it's it's you know the industry has changed where you're not in the studio you may have produced the person but you're not you're not even you're not even like meeting some of them in some cases you know i've worked on a lot of records like that which is crazy i know we promised to give you 30 minutes or so to talk about sub-zeros <laughs> uh, <laughs> anything we need to know? Well, this that this podcast is brought to you by Sub-Zero, where you can get them in the desert. There's several locations, and right now we're having some really great offers. Uh, if you buy a wolf range right now, you will get a Sub-Zero. Anyway, what, so, anyway uh, next question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't have any more important questions than that. That's been sitting on my brain for the last half hour. That is not for podcast discussion, but I'll tell you the whole story yeah, one day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's just, I called it a fetish earlier and I'll stick with that. That's, <laughs> that's what it is. 
Well, we're going to be wrapping up here in a minute. Uh, really appreciate you being here. I have a question. What's the favorite venue you've ever played at? Wow. There's been so many cool places that we have played through the years, but I think probably the most iconic, coolest place that I played, Japan was amazing, but I, I would have to say that probably for me, the Apollo Theater was, oh. was really, 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 really cool. Yeah. Um, and at that time, when I was with Jody Watley and I played there, I know it's going to sound crazy, but I was one of the, and they told me at the time, I was one of the few white artists, performers, musicians that ever played that stage. So that must have been something just walking onto that stage. It really was, yeah. and I, it, it was a pinch me moment because here I am, you know, in this all black band, and I'm the white guy playing, you know, with this amazing artist that had just won Best New Artist at the Grammys, and <clears throat> yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a cool moment. The, uh, how long were you with Jody Watley? You guys. So I did her her. This was her biggest tour to date, which was the Larger Than Life tour. So that started in. I think February and went until like September or October. So that was her biggest, longest tour at that time when she was a you know, major star. What a cool experience for you. Well, Sean, thank you so much. We just really appreciate it. It's, it's really interesting to get the behind the scenes on this stuff. And we're excited about Feel the Breeze and I'm excited about Supermoon. I've had a chance to hear the whole album. It's it's phenomenal. Thank you. Uh, it's it, you know it, it's like I don't know I can't uh, speak personally about childbirth but I could imagine childbirth probably feels like this because making this record was painful. <laughs> well, <laughs> thankfully childbirth doesn't take uh, nine plus years <laughs> exactly. like this album did. Exactly. <laughs> but we really appreciate your time, Randy and I. Uh, Thank you. This was kind of the idea behind this podcast was really more of a, a music idea, and so it's really fun to bring in somebody who lives in that world. Yeah. Uh, so we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Sean, before we go, tell people where they can find your music. Give us your website. Yeah. You know, if you're interested in, in purchasing the single, obviously, you can you can go to all, all the usual outlets, uh, Apple Music, Amazon, CD Baby, Spotify. Um, and if you want to learn more about me, obviously, SeanLaBelle.com is a good place to find me. And uh, please, I encourage you to go out and purchase the single, and the album will be out in March. Can't wait. Thank you, Sean. Thanks so much. I want to say thank you to John McMullen, who is on the boards and producing for us today. We could not get all of this without him, so it's a, it's a cool collaboration. And Randy, it's always fun to work with you. Yep. Sean, it's been a blast to have you here. And, and Patrick, I still can't believe we get to do this whenever we want. Well, I'm sure once Sub-Zero hears about it, they're going to shut us down. No, but probably. <laughs> Luckily, there's no contract anybody can tear up for us, so we're good. Sean, thanks again. And uh, Patrick, until the next time. We're looking forward to the next edition of Big Conversations Little Bar. The sound behind us is Little Bar. Come on and join us sometime. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Big Conversations Little Bar. Join Randy and Patrick next time as we keep the conversation going right here on Big Conversations Little Bar. Little Bar.